Bonhoeffer once said, the church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. Uh, You know, over the centuries, the church has been maligned by many people. She's been criticized and slandered at times for her stance on doctrine, at times because of policy concerning social and moral and cultural issues, really pretty much any area where the church has engaged with individuals or communities or even society as a whole. And to be fair, at times the church has earned those criticisms. So I think if church leaders especially are to be honest, then we have to be willing to admit that because the church has certainly been far from perfect. And yet if those who are critical of the church are to be honest as well, then they in turn must admit that the church has been unparalleled throughout history with any other organization, group, or government in terms of the good that it has accomplished in this world. The church has established hospitals, schools, and universities that have healed, educated, trained, and sent out millions of people into the world to do wonderful things. Tremendous works of progress in art, advances in science and archaeology, innovations in the medical field, great social works have all been accomplished in the name of Christianity. Millions of churches have been established that have had an immeasurable impact on the world by improving the lives of those who are the most vulnerable among us. The church of Jesus Christ is like nothing else on earth. There there really is nothing else we can compare it to. In fact, if I just look back personally over the past 30 years of pastoral ministry, just if I just consider the five local churches that I've been employed at in the last 30 years, over that period of time, in those five churches alone, I can, as a firsthand witness, point to thousands and thousands of meals fed to hungry people, literally. Thousands of items of clothing, blankets, furniture, and other personal goods given to people in great need. I've watched marriages on the brink of disaster restored through the church. People with every kind of struggle and hurt healed and restored when the church wrapped her arms around them and counseled them and prayed for them and provided for them and loved them through those difficult times. I've seen so many lives truly changed. I'm talking about transformed into the image of Christ through the ministry of the local church. People delivered, healed, dedicated, saved, baptized, restored into a right relationship with God and with others. And listen, that's just the five local churches that I've worked in, including this one. Just five simple local churches filled with people working together, unified in Christ, fulfilling his great commission. Now, add in all of the other churches around the world, just in that same 30-year period of time, and let that sink in. How many human souls have been saved, delivered, healed, loved, provided for just in the past three decades through the local church. It's truly staggering. There is nothing else comparable to the church of Jesus Christ. No group, no program, no organization or government that even comes close. The undeniable truth is the church has been an astonishing force for good in this world. Author, historian, and noted atheist Tom Holland while studying the ancient world, 
writes that he realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. How did we get from there to here? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It is ironic, Holland notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christianity is derided. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. This is from a noted atheist and author. The the undeniable truth is the church has been an astonishing force for good in this world because while mankind has come up with a lot of ideas and programs and organizations and governments and plans for this world over the century, the church is God's plan for this world. And Jesus made it very clear, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18, okay? The church is God's plan, not ours. We didn't come up with this idea. The church is his design, not ours. The church is his will for this world, and hopefully his will has become ours. But listen, it didn't start with us. Okay, we say it here often, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B, which is true. Yet I've talked to a lot of people, I'm talking about professing Christians over these past 30 years, who have said to me, Pastor, I'm done with the organized church, because they're unhappy with how it's being run, or how it treated them at some point, or how it ended the program they were a part of, or fill in the blank. There are plenty of reasons why people become disillusioned with the church, and again, some of those reasons are valid, right? Because the church is certainly far from perfect. But listen, to say that you're done with the organized church is to say that you're done with God's plan for your life. To say that you're done with the organized church is to say that you're done with God's plan for your life, which of course is not a viable option if our desire is to remain in the will of God, which we'll see in our text this morning. And so where the church really shines is when we embrace our true identity in Christ as his body while at the same time rejecting the temptation to try and be something that God never intended for us to be. Because it is then, when we begin to try and operate outside of the mandates of Christ for His church, when we try to become primarily a a political organization, for instance, or primarily a social justice organization, or primarily an influencer on current trends in pop culture, it is then that the church becomes increasingly ineffective, because that is not what God designed us for. Now certainly the church can have influence on the political climate in any given society. Yes, the church can and should be heavily involved in works of social justice, and the church can have a great impact on the culture around us. Yes to all of that, but the way that we do all of that most effectively is not by focusing primarily on any of that. Okay, if the church is to have its greatest impact possible on government and society and culture in general, it will be when we are focused on what he designed and equipped and commanded us to do. It's the same reason that militaries don't make great police forces and police organizations don't make great militaries. People have tried, but it doesn't work because they're primarily designed and trained and equipped to accomplish different purposes, right? The military exists to defend our homeland and our freedom by defeating our enemies who would try to 
to take those things away from us. The police exist to enforce our laws by preventing, stopping, and investigating crime. Two very different organizations created, designed, and equipped for very different purposes. Listen, the church is no different. If the church is to have its greatest impact possible on government and society and culture in general, it will be when we're focused on what he designed and equipped and commanded us to do. Okay? The church is most effective when we're making disciples of Jesus Christ and reaching the lost. Period. The church is most effective. We work like we're supposed to. When we're making disciples of Jesus Christ and reaching the lost together. Together. Organized together as his local church. Because that's what he designed us for. Not to be a wing of a political party or primarily a mercy program or even a loud voice in popular culture. We must, with an acute sense of purpose and resolve, stay focused on the great commission that Christ has set before us if we're to accomplish his will on this earth as it is in heaven. And of course, what that means for each of us as members of his church is that we have to dedicate our lives, our entire lives, generously to that end, to serve him as we serve each other and reach out to the rest of the world. There's just no way around it that it's going to mean we live our lives spending ourselves and our resources for the cause of Christ. This idea that God rewards his followers by pouring out wealth and material blessings on us so that we can hoard our resources and then live out our lives comfortable, entitled, and insulated from the rest of society is a failed doctrine. In fact, it's a false doctrine that is not founded in the truth of God's word, nor should it be reflected in his church because it undermines the character and cause of Christ. Now, to be clear, God does pour out all kinds of blessings, material and otherwise, on his children because he loves us and wants to bless us with good things. We talked about that last week, and that is wonderful, and I'm very grateful for that. So we don't, listen, you don't have to feel bad for having nice things as long as you understand the purpose of those blessings isn't merely to bless you. The purpose for God's blessings and provision in our lives is not only that we can be taken care of, but also that we can take care of others by being generous with what he's given us, which we saw in our story last week where Paul, referring to the spiritual and material blessings that we receive from God, said, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, the church, will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, God enriches us so that, specifically, we can be generous to others as we minister to one another through the church. Okay, He enriches our lives so that we can be generous. Everything that Jesus had, He used to bless others with. That's our example to follow as always. We're to practice generosity in every area of our lives, just as Jesus did. And again, as we saw last week, when Paul talked about generosity throughout chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians... He was referring to extravagant giving. That is the meaning of generosity in the original language that Paul uses in that chapter. That's why the church throughout history has been so effective. All the things I just listed because of its generous giving in every area of the life of the church when we're focused on doing what we're equipped and commanded and called to do. And so we're called and equipped and commanded to be extravagant givers in every area of life, including our money, which is the part so many of us have such a hard time with. And so it, it tends to be a, a subject 
we don't like to talk about in church, and we haven't talked about it, as I mentioned, very much in this church. Uh, so I'm not going to explain all that again. I went through that last week, other than to say, again, this is the third time, literally, that I've preached a sermon on giving in almost 11 years. October will be 11 years since we planted this church. I'm not proud of that, by the way. It's just a fact. So I, I would ask you, if you weren't here last Sunday and you're willing to, I would ask you to go back as you have time and watch last week's message on our website or YouTube channel, because that was part one of the first half of this message today that we're finishing. And along with today's message, this is a fairly uh, thorough exposition of what we believe to be an accurate biblical theology for giving concerning the body of Christ today, which is imperative for us to understand if we're to actually carry out that great commission that he gave us. And so today we'll finish up talking about generosity and then next week we'll, we'll jump into a new sermon series, a new book of the Bible. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, this is a part of the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his co-worker Timothy while Timothy was in Ephesus. And there were issues arising at the church in that city that amounted to false teachers trying to lead the believers there away from the truth. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy concerning the behavior of some of those who were causing problems in the Ephesian church. And the entire letter is Paul basically explaining to Timothy that all true Christian behavior, all true Christ-like behavior is rooted and grounded in the gospel. And in this particular chapter, Paul's addressing specifically what some in the church were teaching about money and giving and how their distortion of the truth was leading people away from Christ. So let's start with the first five verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul tells Timothy to teach the Christians in Ephesus to honor one another. More specifically, he says, for those who are servants or slaves to honor the people they work for, to be generous in their service, especially to other believers, so that the name of God and the teaching of the gospel may not be reviled. That word reviled in the uh, original Greek is blasphemeo. It means to blaspheme or defame. In other words, the world, those outside of the church, judge the validity of our testimony and the gospel message itself based on how we conduct our lives and more specifically how we treat each other within the church, the body of Christ. Paul's saying, hey guys, the world is watching us. And if we're not living according to the gospel and treating each other as we should, then those outside of the faith will actually revile. They will defame the message that we're claiming we live by. It's the same thing Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. This is how people will know that you are who you say you are and that what you say you believe in is true. If you have love for one another. 
comes down to how we treat one another in the body of Christ. And as if Paul's command here isn't strong enough for your average citizen, he applies it to slaves. Okay, At the time when Christianity arose in the first century, there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So Paul is talking to a very large segment of the population, some of whom were treated very poorly. And yet he says, be generous in your service, even to your masters. And so although he will specifically address wealthy people, as we'll see in a few moments. Here he addresses those with the least material wealth of anyone else in society with the command to be generous in their giving, whether it be with their goods or in their service. In other words, this principle of generosity applies to everyone, even those with the least among us. And this is a truly beautiful example of how the gospel cuts right through ethnic barriers and socioeconomic barriers and class barriers and cultural barriers and on and on because it was not uncommon. Listen, it was not uncommon in the early church for a master and a slave to not only go to church together, but often the slave would be an elder in the church and the master was expected to submit to his slave's spiritual leadership. It was radical thinking at the time and radically offensive to many people who were outside of the church but it underscores the effectiveness of the church when we lay down our own desire for gain and generously submit ourselves and our resources to God and to his gospel and to each other. And so right after telling them to live according to the gospel, Paul describes some of the people in the Ephesian church who've been living and teaching contrary to the gospel. In fact, they've been teaching others in the church that the point of the gospel is to bring believers personal wealth and material gain. This is the prosperity gospel at its worst. And as you can see, it's been around since the first century. And although the church in many instances in modern times has given prosperity gospel preachers a free pass because that type of teaching can obviously be very appealing, Paul wasn't nearly as kind. He described the prosperity preacher as one who's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain specifically material gain. These are harsh words, but Paul knew that deviating from the truth of the gospel message within the church and teaching any other message or any other version of that message was subversive to the true mission of the church. And so the entire reason God gives us good gifts to begin with, and he surely does, is so that we will be able to carry out the mission that he created us for. And yet these false teachers were prostituting a false version of the gospel for their own personal gain to hoard it for themselves. And unfortunately, for some today, nothing has changed. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul says there's great gain. There there is great gain in godliness when we're content with what God has given us at whatever point we are at. The godliness that he speaks of is the opposite of greed. Notice he's not condemning material things. 
Okay, again, it's, it's okay to have nice things. He's condemning the desire inside of us for those material things, just to hoard those things, because that desire can lead us into all sorts of evil and even potentially away from the faith, Paul says, right? He doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evils. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So don't miss the connection here between the desire to be rich and the prevalence of false teaching, right? God has blessed many people throughout history with tremendous riches to do great things for his kingdom. It's the desire that for that that we have to be careful of. And there's a connection because those two enemies of the church, okay, the, the desire to be rich and the prevalence of false teaching, those two enemies of the church have always been closely connected. They go, hand, they go hand in hand. Greed and false teaching in the church have been married for 2,000 years, and they're leveraged by many a wolf in sheep's clothing to try and steal from God's people. This isn't just a word um, for preachers, by the way. As David Gusick comments, some of the most dangerous teaching in the church isn't done from a pulpit, but in informal, private conversations. Meaning anyone can lead anyone else in the church away from the truth. And so Paul points out when we claim to be followers of Christ, but live contrary to the gospel, we're blaspheming God's name and his word. Okay, it's serious business when money and materialism become a God in our lives. And it's bad enough when we struggle with this personally, but if we're not careful because we want to justify our own actions, if we're not careful, we can begin to adjust the word of God to fit our lifestyle instead of adjusting our lifestyle to fit the word of God. To the point that our motives and our actions no longer reflect the gospel that we claim to represent. Which is often, by the way, how false teaching starts. And this is precisely what Paul is confronting through Timothy at Ephesus. So last week, in our outline, we saw that, number one, generosity is the way of Christ. Number two, generosity demands a response. Number three, generosity is extravagant giving. And in our story today, Paul is teaching us, number four, that generosity is the remedy for greed. The way that we combat greed in our lives is by being generous with that which he has blessed us with. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, we need to learn to be content with what we have living godly lives, which are gospel lives, generous lives focused on what we can give rather than what we can get. And again, last week we talked about how much giving does it take for our giving to be considered generous. So we looked at Paul's use of the word generosity, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, our text from last week, where he used the Greek word haplites, literally means a copious bestowal or bountifulness or liberality. Paul was saying that generosity is giving copiously, bountifully, liberally, which is exactly how Jesus gave to us. And so here in this letter to Timothy, Paul says, be content with what you have and live godly lives. Live like Jesus lived. Let that be your desire for gain. For that is what keeps us from ungodly desires, from longing to be rich, which leads us and others away from the faith. Generosity, giving extravagantly, is the remedy. It is the antidote for greed. Jesus said, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions, Luke twelve fifteen. okay? When our desire to gain overtakes our desire to give, we have not only lost our gospel perspective, but we've lost our Christian testimony to the world, right? And on top of that, everything that we pour our passion into when our focus is on material wealth 
You understand it all amounts to absolutely nothing in the end. Paul said, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If, if you keep reading Luke 12, Jesus says the same thing in a parable. Every material thing that you long for and strive for and accumulate in this life will amount to exactly nothing at the end of your life. While on the contrary, the generosity that you sow into others' lives when you passionately pursue giving into other people's lives, that lasts forever. After the parable in Luke 12, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 33. Okay, generosity, giving extravagantly, is the remedy for greed. It is the cure for greed, and it should be a hallmark in the life of every follower of Christ. Now, as we continue to read, Paul explains to Timothy how living this kind of generous life should be an example to the others. Let's read verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in direct contrast to the false teachers mentioned earlier, Paul describes the life of true ministry to Timothy, which is unmotivated by greed, unlike the false teachers, and instead focused on righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then he tells Timothy to live up to the good confession that Timothy has made, just as Jesus lived up to the same good confession that he made before Pontius Pilate. So as always, it all comes back to Jesus and the example that he lived out for us. We are to do the work that Jesus did, to not only profess the gospel message, but to live it out as members of this church, this family of believers. You understand, this is the essence of the church. When believers come together in unity and do the things that Jesus did while simultaneously forsaking the self-serving worldly motivations that so many have tried to attach to the gospel. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill who said, everyone wants to be clothed in power, but no one wants to be stripped of self. And so just to remind Timothy and all of us, Paul describes the infinitely superior motivation that should be at the center of all that we do. Not worldly gain, but he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. That is our motivation. That is our drive. That is our reason for doing what we do. It's all about Jesus Christ. And then just as Paul started the chapter talking about those among us with the least amount of material resources to offer the church, he finishes the letter talking about those with the most amount of material resources to offer. So let's read it, verse 17, to the end. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul starts out telling Timothy to tell the slaves among them to be generous, and he ends the letter telling Timothy to tell the rich among them to be generous. In other words, it doesn't matter our station or position or title or status or financial portfolio. If you're a member of his church, a believer and follower of Christ, then you are to be generous with everything that God has given you. No exceptions, no exemptions, no excuses. Generosity is the remedy for greed. And I love how Paul puts it in verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. In other words, the true riches in this life that we should be guarding are not financial deposits, but the good news of the gospel and the new life that we've been given. That's the deposit that we must protect above every other craving in this world. It cures our greed and keeps us focused on Christ, which we'll need in the days ahead because there's much to be done and the church is God's agent through which his work is accomplished on this earth. And so he pours out resources into our lives, not so that we can hoard them for our own personal comfort and security. Now he pours his resources out onto us, the the church, to enable us to be generous in the work of Christ that we've been called to. Okay, number five, generosity is the fuel that keeps the church running. Our resources are intended to finance the mission of Jesus Christ through his local church. The propagation of the American dream has led a lot of people to believe that our resources are intended primarily for our own personal benefit. And if there happens to be any excess at the end of the day and we're good religious people, then we should give some of it to the church. I told you last week, apple trees don't consume their own apples. God doesn't bless the apple tree with all of those apples to feed itself. It's to feed those around it, right? Everything that we have, according to Scripture, came from God and belongs to God. We're nothing more than managers of his resources, and he's commanded us to be generous, to give extravagantly to his church so that his work can be accomplished. The fuel that keeps healthy, thriving, and growing churches healthy, thriving, and growing is generous people. Of course, we're focused on Christ, guided and empowered by his Holy Spirit according to the plan of the Father, and then he uses us to carry out that plan, which is why he blesses us with so much, so that we can be generous with so much in accomplishing that plan. It means the mission of the church can be carried out without any lack. And as we've seen here in this letter, how much we think we have or don't have has zero bearing on our responsibility to be generous. There, There are people who believe the church exists solely to bless them. Well, the church does exist to bless us, but it also exists as a means through which we can be a blessing to others. And so last week we talked about how much is enough when we talk about giving. I talked about why my own family gives a whole lot more than 10% of our personal income to the church, which was God's standard for his people all throughout Scripture. Yet in Christ, in Christ he wants everything. We, we errantly think that 10%, which is a tithe, was an Old Testament requirement, that, and now we live under grace, so there's no standard anymore for giving to the church. We covered all that last week. You should go back and listen if you missed it. When actually Jesus said, hey, there's a new standard. Under the new covenant, the, God's expectations for his people didn't dissolve. Jesus came and raised the bar. The new standard is everything. 
No more percentages. So he says, go ahead and use as much of God's money as you need to to take care of yourself and your family. Yes, and then spend the rest of your life figuring out ways to give the rest of it away to his mission through his church because Jesus says, I want it all. And again, if you weren't here and you don't believe me, listen to that sermon. I won't go through all of it again today other than to say we're to be generous, we're to give extravagantly, and that giving is to be done, by the way, specifically through the local church. Why? Why do we give to and through the church? Because the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. And listen, when we do that, when we give to the church extravagantly, lavishly, generously, the church is able to carry out the mission of the gospel that it was called and equipped to carry out effectively, which means the degree of effectiveness the church is able to carry out that mission is directly tied to the degree of generosity among its members. It's a simple formula. The more generous we are, the more we can accomplish together, while the less generous we are, the less we're able to do for Christ. So I mentioned last Sunday that we would focus that day on talking about the theology of giving, the spiritual aspects of giving. Of course, it's all spiritual, but for the rest of this message, I want to talk to you about the practical aspects of giving here at Upcountry Church. What exactly can we accomplish when we become generous, extravagant givers? Okay, when Mary Beth and I and our kids were living and pastoring a church in Alaska, we knew we heard from God to plant a church in South Carolina, and we felt a burden for Traveler's Rest specifically to plant a gospel-centered, word-centered, Christ-centered church that was focused on people instead of programs. A church with a simple, uncluttered vision to make disciples and reach the lost. And a really natural and straightforward approach to the mission of making disciples through genuine community, strong relationships rooted in a shared focus on Christ through our worship and the study of the scriptures and a desire to share all of that with others. And yet as much as we have a burden for traveler's rest, we knew then as we know now that God didn't give us this vision for a new church just to keep it to ourselves or even to our own town. And so it has been our desire and intention from day one, and still is, to expand our reach beyond our community. And of course, the way we expand our reach beyond this community is to expand our reach within this community, because our vision for this church will only ever go as far as the people of this church are willing and able to take it. And so as a rule, with a local church, the more people we reach, the further we can reach out. And so in order to do that, Look, we've leveraged every resource we have, human and material, over these past 10 plus years to carry out the mission that he's set before us as effectively as we possibly can. Here are just a few quick highlights. We published a book several years ago of true stories from you, testimonies of several of your families or your lives, people in this congregation powerful stories so that our community could get to know us a little bit and hear a clear presentation of the gospel in each story before they ever walk through these doors. And so we mailed out thousands and thousands of copies of that book to homes all over our zip code. And the response was amazing. Many, many people came here and received Christ because of those books. And so as resources came in, we started seeking out missionaries who are like-minded people who passionately and generously devote themselves to sharing the 
gospel even in some of the darkest and most dangerous parts of the world. And we started generously supporting them. And the result has been profound. People all over the world being saved, discipled. We have children by the tens of thousands literally being saved from living on the streets and in gangs. They're given a new life and education and a relationship of Christ directly from your generosity. And then right here at home, we started feeding hungry people and clothing them. We have fixed broken houses and broken cars. And through us, Jesus has fixed broken hearts and broken marriages and broken people. We've paid bills. We've paid for surgeries. We've uh, purchased furniture and fixtures and appliances and vehicles and homes. We bought school supplies and winter coats for kids who had none. And we've furnished rebuilt homes after catastrophic fires and other disasters. We've provided, look, we've provided more Christmas gifts to kids in our community than my own kids could ever hope to get, probably yours too. And we've provided more Thanksgiving meals that would make any mom proud than I can remember. And all of that while sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called generosity and it is central to our mission. But listen, as wonderful as it has been, and it has been wonderful, There is so much more, not only that we can do, but that he's calling us to do. But that means expanding our presence and influence in this community, our home first, because the way we expand our reach beyond this community is to expand our reach within the community. And of course, there are preferences for sure that we have by having a larger footprint in our town that would certainly benefit our church. We really want to bring our kids under the same roof. In fact, we've lost quite a few families because our kids are at a different address on Sunday mornings. But you understand, we need a bigger facility to do that. We want to bring our congregation together to worship together in the same room at the same time as one body, not spread out across multiple services. We've had over 500 people in here several times this year, but you wouldn't know it because our room is so small. Right, but we need a bigger facility to bring everybody together. There are many aspects of having a larger facility that we would prefer. But I want you to understand this isn't just about what we prefer. It's about the mission he has set before us. Everything I just talked about that we've been engaged in for the past 10 years has been wonderful and effective at winning souls for Christ and making disciples. But I'm telling you, we're just getting started. There is so much more of all of that and then some to be done. And yet the extent of our reach in this community will always be tied to the extent of our influence in this community. And yet we cannot increase our capacity for ministry if we don't increase our capacity for people to become a part of this ministry, which means it's time for a larger facility. I'll just give you one example because we're running out of time. I have a clear calling from God. Actually, it's a deep burden to teach the unadulterated word of God as it was given to us line by line, verse by verse, book by book. It's all I want to do. Because I believe the modern church in so many cases has become biblically illiterate and God is calling us back to his word. And listen, one of the great joys of this church for me is the fact that God has brought alongside of us so many people who share that same burden. There are many among you with the gifting and calling and desire to teach. It's amazing. And if you've been here any length of time, you know the burden that I have personally for not just me teaching, but for so many of you to be teaching and discipling as well on an ongoing, consistent basis through a very real, organized Christian education effort. I'm talking about Sunday school. 
Listen, I was saved in Sunday school, discipled in Sunday school, called to ministry in Sunday school, and given a passion for the Word of God in Sunday school. It is my heart to have multiple adult and children's Sunday school classes happening at our church every single Sunday morning. We have Bob Fox. He does a phenomenal job teaching an adult Sunday school class. Imagine multiple classes that deep dive into God's Word that people can rotate through every Sunday, and yet because of the lack of space we can't do that we use every inch of all three buildings now you understand that sunday school is where discipleship happens it's where relationships are formed it's where people are called and equipped into ministry okay if we want to extend our reach beyond this community we have to extend our reach into this community and that means a greater presence a greater influence through discipleship but we need a bigger facility to do that and and hear me this is one example of extending our reach into the community by increasing our physical capacity to do ministry in this community. And by the way, over the past 10 years since we started this church, every single time we've added capacity to our facilities by either buying uh, bigger buildings or adding services, every single time the church has grown and filled those buildings and services and our reach into this community and beyond has been extended significantly through you. And so we just added a third service, right? An evening service. And it's growing as are both morning services filling back up again. And every time a new person or a new family in this community joins with us, the further our reach is extended into and beyond this community because with every new person comes new talents, new vision for, and new resources to accomplish the mission before us. But look, I'm I'm telling you from experience, the moment we stop expanding our space to allow for growth, That's the moment we stop extending our reach because our resources, human and material, are capped off. And so here we are. One of those growth points, again, it's familiar territory. We've been here several times over the years. And so, as I said, we just added another service, which was the right thing to do. But listen, that's only going to buy us a little time. If we're going to reach further beyond this community, then we need to reach further into our community. And uh, we're at the point where that means a bigger facility. More capacity for more people and more ministry to accomplish the vision he set before us. And of course, that means a whole new level of generosity in our part to get there. It's going to mean extravagant giving, copious, bountiful, liberal giving. And I know it's a big ask. By the way, Part of the struggle for leaders, church leaders, is that most people's tendency is to give towards something they can see, touch, feel, experience firsthand, which means having a facility, in this case, before us, one that we can look at now and touch it and experience it. The problem with that is I can't go to someone selling a building and say, hey, this is perfect, man, we'll take it. I just need you to give me a couple years to raise the money. It doesn't work that way. We've lost other properties because we didn't have the money, right? And yet getting people to give to a building that isn't available yet or maybe isn't even built yet, that's a lot harder to do. And yet at the same time, that's, that's exactly what I'm asking you to consider. Just before COVID, we found a building that we wanted to purchase and we presented it to you and so many of you gave so generously But it wasn't enough to purchase the building. And then COVID hit immediately after. And what a blessing it was that we didn't get that building because we would have been in the middle of a massive renovation project during the pandemic. So I believe God protected us there. But do you know, every penny of that money that you gave 
is sitting in an account right now, waiting to be used when God presents the right opportunity. Now, of course, it's not enough. There isn't nearly enough in that account to purchase a new building, but I believe it's seed money that was sown by you in faith for the building we're meant to have. And I'm asking you to consider what God would have you do now so that when we do find what we need, we'll be able to move on that new facility. Until then, those funds will be kept just as the others. And this is always an awkward conversation for a pastor to have, but honestly, I'm overjoyed that we actually need to have it because it means we're growing and trying to expand our reach into this community so that we can expand our reach beyond it. And it's going to take every single one of us to be on board. Because as church people often say, by the way, I get this all the time, what God calls you to, he provides for. Well, that's true, but do you know how he provides for it? Through you and me, through us. People come up to me all the time and say, don't worry, Pastor, God will provide what we need. And I want to say, can you, can you tell me that while you're filling out a check? It'd be a lot more encouraging. It's me and you. It's the generosity of his people. It's each of us doing our part. And so I'm simply asking you to consider what it means to be generous. And to honestly assess that in your own life and in your own heart. And if you're doing any less than all that you absolutely could be doing, I'm simply asking you, what are you waiting for? Let's not wait another day to be generous givers. Let's give him everything that we can. And then, look, he can turn it into whatever he wants it to be. I can promise you, by the way, I can promise you, you won't regret it. In fact, in all of the years as a pastor that I've spent talking to people about their lives and helping them, especially in difficult stages of their lives, which, by the way, is when everyone starts to reflect on their past choices and relationships, their lives, I have yet to ever hear anyone say to me, Pastor, I wish I'd given less. I wish I'd done less with what I had. I've never heard anyone say that when they look back on their lives, but I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, Pastor, I wish I'd given more. I wish I'd done more with what he gave me. And I'm telling you, now is the time. The only question left is, what are you waiting for? Let's pray.